Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, an ASU professor joined a group of historians to file an amicus brief with the Supreme Court in support of the argument that Trump should be removed from the ballot. And we'll hear from Congressman Ruben Gallego and Senate candidate Carrie Lake with their takes on the bipartisan immigration deal in Congress. But first, the deadline to file bills in the Arizona state legislature has come and gone this week. So it's time to take a few minutes to talk about how this election year session is shaping up. Lawmakers are concerned about housing, water, education and the upcoming election calendar. But can they come together to make anything happen on those fronts? Here to shed some light is our own Wayne Shetsky with KJZZ's Politics Desk. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. Okay, so... If you're looking at trends so far this year, this session, how is it shaping up? Like what comes to mind first for you? So uh, when I think about each session, there always seems to be one big issue that kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the room that hmm. maybe regular folks didn't see coming. This year, it's this election deadlines issue that we've been talking about a lot the past few weeks. Um, everyone agrees it's a problem, Republicans, Democrats, but they don't agree on how to fix it. Uh, the Repub- they both introduced their bills this this year uh, or this week. The Republican bill essentially wants to change a lot of little things to give counties enough time to get these elections done, meet all their deadlines, whereas the Democrats want to essentially roll back a recount law passed by Republicans with some bipartisan support a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of stuck in a holding pattern and this has to be solved by Friday according like now, yeah. <laughs> according to the counties. And – but what we're seeing from both sides, you know, is different solutions. Democratic lawmakers, uh, Laura Tarek, who sponsored the Democratic bill, mm-hmm. has shown a willingness, she says, basically to compromise, tack some amendments onto the Republican bill and 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 see that compromise. But the governor's office thus far has, has hasn't been – seemed so open to yeah. that compromise. So it's a little bit of a stalemate. We'll have to see something happen this week on that because this is pretty much up to the wire here. You said this is sort of a pattern like there always seems to be something like this that comes forward. What was it before? Yeah. So like last, the last few years, it's been this thing called the aggregate expenditure limit, mm-hmm. which is a term that regular Arizonans probably hadn't ever heard before but is essentially the limit on how much schools can spend. And so even when the legislature allocated money to them, if it went over that limit, the legislature had to vote again to allow them to spend it. And uh, even though both sides agreed that they should allow that, it, they took it up to the wire two years in a row to get that vote done. Right down to the wire. And we'll be watching for what happens on that front this week. That's a big one. Another example of sort of when, you know, something has to get done, they seem to agree that something has to get done, but no one seems to agree on exactly how to do it. Probably this session is is Prop 123, right? Like both Democrats and Republicans want to extend this way to fund education. But they at least so far cannot agree on exactly how much to take from the state land trust, right? Yes. And so that yeah, that's the the amount of money that schools get from the land trust. Uh, It it was extended in 2016 up to 6.9 percent. Republicans want to keep that going at that rate, but use it all for teacher pay. But Democrats want to actually bump it up to 8.9 percent under Governor Katie Hobbs plan and use it for teacher pay, other staff pay and some other school expenses. Mm. And, And again, this one, the Republicans are kind of in control because this doesn't have to get a signature from the governor. So as long as they can get the votes to, from their own party to refer it to the ballot, then it will be up to voters to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, it's another issue where they both seem to have the same end goal, but the specific, uh, you know, the devil's in the details. The devil's in the details. All right. Let's talk, Wayne, about vetoes. Last session, Hobbs had a record number of vetoes. I can't remember the number. Do you? Uh, it was in, in the, the 140s, I believe. In, in the, yeah, over 100. And this time around, though, there might be some issues, it sounds like, that her party opposes, but she might have a hard time vetoing. W- w- tell us about some of these bills. Yeah, so I think we're seeing some of the same stuff that, you know, some of these election bills from Republicans getting rid of voting centers, um, some of the pronoun use by student bills that we saw last year that you'll see the governor veto again. But there's other ones that caught my eye, like uh, Major League Baseball wants an exemption from the minimum wage for minor league players. Mm. And... Uh, right now, a lot of Democrats in the legislature have opposed it because Lucha, a progressive group that fought for the minimum wage law, um, is opposing it, saying it undermines that voter-approved law. And uh, the rubber meets the road when it gets to the governor. The Dems can vote against it and it'll, it could still pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially not angering Major League Baseball, Cactus League, big industry here. But the governor is the one who's going to have to look that down and say, do I want to side with my political allies here or do I want to side with this large business organization that brings a lot of money to the state. Mm. What about bipartisanship, the big B word here, Wayne? Like when you when it comes to lawmakers, there's going to have to be some bipartisanship because you've got the GOP controlled ledge. You've got Katie Hobbs in the governor's office. Uh, are they working together? Like, is this happening? Yeah, every year there is bipartisanship that happens. It just um, it gets overshadowed by yeah. a lot of these big fights because a lot of them are these more run of the mill bills, but they're still I think important things that affect Arizonans. Just a few days ago, we saw several bills pass through the Arizona House with zero no votes. Like mm. um, uh, Representative Lauren Hendricks had one, and it had to do with you know contractors who file liens when they don't get paid, and he wanted to make sure that little technicalities like font size on a notice they have to file doesn't throw out their whole claim. Mm. Um, so that's like a big deal for small business owners who might not be getting paid for the work they're doing, and it passed with bipartisan support. Um, Another one of Hendricks' bills, one of my personal favorites, the composting grandpa bill yes, that would yes. uh, provide a new avenue for uh, when when a loved one dies, you know, beyond traditional burial or, or cremation. Mm-hmm. Um, that also had bipartisan support. Um, so those little bills are always going through. Um, yeah. And I think it's a good thing to point it out that there is business being done down there <laughs> even when these big stalemates are happening. I think that's worth pointing out. An important story there. Last thing for you that lawmakers, are, the only thing they have to do, right, is pass a budget every session. Where does that stand right now? Are there negotiations happening? Um, I assume there's some negotiations happening, but there's nothing we've heard about. And early on in the session, um, Republicans had – some Republicans had indicated, you know, I think we can get us a, a bill done – or a budget uh, done earlier this year because mm. we don't have that much money to play with. So, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, ever since the governor introduced her budget priorities last month, we haven't heard much other than Republicans saying, you know, wholeheartedly, we don't like it. Mm. Um, so I think this de- deadline issue has sucked some of the air out of the room on that. And maybe when this is solved, we'll, we'll start seeing that move forward a little bit. All right. That'll do it for now. Wayne Shetsky with KJZZ's Politics Desk joining us. Wayne, thanks as always. Yeah, of course. The U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear arguments tomorrow to decide if former President Donald Trump should be barred from the ballot in the 2024 election due to what was once a rather obscure constitutional amendment. 
But now Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is being widely debated, and not just by historians. This comes after the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that it rendered Trump ineligible to appear on that state's ballot due to his involvement in the violent January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Now, a group of 25 prominent U.S. historians are weighing in with an amicus brief to the high court that argues two key things. The amendment covers the office of the president, and it does not require an act of Congress to keep insurrectionists from office. ASU Foundation professor of history Brooks Simpson was one of those 25 historians, and I spoke with him more about the historic context of the 14th Amendment and why he felt it was important to weigh in now. The origins of the 14th Amendment come in the aftermath of the American Civil War and the question of what to do with white Southerners seeking readmission uh, into the United States, especially who would get to serve in federal offices. After all, there are a lot of white Southerners who had served in the Confederate Army or other armed forces. Well, President Andrew Johnson at that time, having become president upon the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, was willing to welcome most of these former Confederates as possible office holders. And indeed, white Southerners, blacks were not allowed to vote in the American South at this time, Mm. uh, elected former Confederate military personnel and some political personnel to various political offices. Republicans in Congress, seeing that this was not acceptable, that you don't allow insurrectionists back into the Union, framed an amendment that covered various aspects of Reconstruction. Uh, They chose the amendment process in part because that would circumvent the possibility of presidential veto. Mm. And they disqualified from holding office those Confederates who had at one point taken an oath of allegiance to the United States of America to support the Constitution. So let's dig into some of the specific language here. At least one of the big questions before the Supreme Court this week will have to do with whether or not the 14th Amendment covers the office of the president. And you and your colleagues in this amicus brief are arguing that it does. Tell us why. Because the people at the time recognized that it covered uh, the office of the presidency, including uh, Jefferson Davis, the former Confederate president. Hmm. He recognized that it covered that. So If we're looking for the original intent of the people who framed this uh, important constitutional amendment, uh, they all agreed that among the offices that they were covering was the office of the president of the United States, as did, by the way, the president at the time, Andrew Johnson, who would later gain some infamy as being the first president to be impeached. Hmm. The language specifies many other office holders, people in the Senate, etc., but doesn't say specifically the president. But you actually, in this brief, cite the historic record like a debate that happened in Congress at the time talking about this exact issue. Can you describe that for us? Well, someone, you know, irreparably Johnson of Maryland started talking about, you know, who does this cover in Republicans? It includes the president. At that point, no one disagreed. The understanding was clear among those who uh, were debating the causes. Republicans then used this same sort of notion to exclude people from office as early as 1862 with the passage of the Second Confiscation Act. Hmm. So the people at the time understood that the presidency uh, was covered under this uh, constitutional amendment. Hmm. 
Let's talk a little bit about the other big question at hand here, or at least one of the other big questions at hand, right, which is is whether or not it would take an additional act of Congress to make this happen. You all are arguing here that it, it would not, that this is included in the amendment for a specific reason. Tell us about that. People understood what an insurrectionist was at that time, that people, in fact, did not have to be tried for having committed insurrection. The 14th Amendment was what was called self-executing. And in fact, people, even before the amendment was ratified in 1868, acted upon that notion, including the uh, commander of the armies of the United States, General-in-Chief Ulysses S. Grant, uh, who in 1867 instructed subordinates that people who had sworn allegiance to the United States and to support the Constitution and then had joined the Confederacy were not eligible to hold office. Hmm. There are also questions about what constitutes an insurrectionist and, and whether or not the former president qualifies here. He hasn't been convicted of anything at this point. Would that need to happen for him to be disqualified here under the 14th Amendment? No, not at all, because, in fact, most Confederates were not tried for committing insurrection after the war. There were no widespread treason trials as a political decision, not mm. as a legal decision. So that that wouldn't apply here at all. And, in fact, I guess I would flip it the other way around and say that if congressional Republicans uh, want to exempt the former president from the operations of the 14th Amendment, they can follow the process outlined in that amendment and secure a two-thirds majority in both houses to hmm. exempt him from that exclusion. Let me ask you, Professor, why you decided to join this brief to speak out about this. Like, why did you want to weigh in as an historian? I wanted to weigh in as a historian because historians are equipped to deal with the question of what did people intend? What were people thinking? What did they want to do? What did the words they use mean? Uh, and at a time when many people talk about the original intent and textual analysis of various constitutional amendments, like, say, the Second Amendment, that uh, historians now looking at the 14th Amendment uh, with a rather large resource in terms of the congressional record and other debates to, to check on, that they could go ahead and say, well, this is what people intended. So, you know, I thought this was something that historians are trained to do is to shed light on the past and what people at the time meant and that they meant what they said and they said what they meant. Mm. Let me ask you lastly, I know this isn't exactly your area of expertise, but I'm sure you've thought about it as you kind of decided to wade into this debate. But I mean, what might the consequences be, you think, of disqualifying someone from the ballot? Doesn't the court usually want to defer to voters on issues like that? Sometimes the court may do that. Uh, but at other times, the court is also entrusted with interpreting the Constitution. And so the justices if they uh, have adhered in the past to a theory of constitutional interpretation based upon original intent and textual analysis, uh, they're going to find themselves bound by that record as outlined in this brief. And they'll have to seek alternative grounds on which to rule if they don't want to rule uh, in favor of disqualification. All right. We'll leave it there. Professor Brooks Simpson, ASU Foundation Professor of History, signed on to this amicus brief. Professor Simpson, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to... Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how nanorobots could make cancer treatment safer and more efficient. 
But first, senators in Washington are scheduled to vote today on a major bipartisan border and national security bill that Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema was key in shaping. It's aimed at addressing the country's overrun immigration system and curtailing the record numbers of migrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. But the bill appears likely to fail as the political chips are falling. Likely GOP presidential nominee and former President Donald Trump is telling Republicans to vote against it and House Speaker Speaker Mike Johnson has said it's, quote, dead on arrival in his chamber. Even among Arizona's congressional delegation, not all of the Democrats are united in their support. Longtime Southern Arizona Representative Raul Grijalva has said that he was disappointed with the bill, echoing immigrant advocates who say the bill is punitive and reads like, quote, an extreme Republican wish list filled with failed Trump-era immigration policies. But our next guest says he is a yes vote if he gets to vote on it in the House. Representative Ruben Gallego is running for Senator Cinema's seat and knows immigration will be a central issue in that election. But he told me that's not why he's supporting this immigration compromise. No, I mean, what played into it, I've been visiting uh, the border and our border communities uh, for the last uh, year and a half and talking to law enforcement, talking to Border Patrol, talking to our local mayors and our nonprofits that are dealing with this crisis at the border. And they've been very clear what they need. Uh, This bill is the closest answer that we can get right now. It's not ideal. I wish it had been sooner. I wish there was elements of immigration reform. But at the same time, we are dealing in divided governments and you have to compromise. And I think this is an adequate compromise that answers the needs of uh, Arizonans and our border communities. So let's talk through some of the things that you like and some of the things that you're a little concerned about in this bill. It sounds like they're a little bit of a mix for you. Tell us first about the importance of local funding. This is supplying some local funding to Mm -hmm. border communities. You mentioned talking to people on the border often about this kind of thing. What did they say they need? How does this fill that? Well, some of the local funding is really important, especially to help uh, with the nonprofits that um, take a lot of these uh, asylum seekers away from the border because they tend to cause a lot of expenditures for these small border communities with a very small tax base. In that regard, that's that's a very good thing. Well, what I also heard from these uh, border mayors uh, is that uh, you know they also need to be reimbursed for law enforcement and emergency services. So for their firefighters, for the EMTs, and for law enforcement. And uh, the one thing that this bill does not have is reimbursements uh, for those expenditures, which I think uh, is a flaw, but not enough, obviously, for me to um, to vote for it. Yeah. Uh, in regards to you know other areas, you know, one of the things that we heard from our border communities is that you know they believe that the asylum system is being abused and they needs to be streamlined so people aren't using the asylum system uh, as a de facto visa program. Mm-hmm. And I think this uh, hits some of those marks, uh, but it has to have the funding. And I think that's the most important thing that is in this bill is it has the funding to both. Number one, streamline the system, but number two, also give people an opportunity to actually argue whether or not they have asylum. Because we don't want to destroy the asylum system uh, in the process of this. So, so there seems to be right now, Congressman, like a political sense that something has to be done about immigration. As I mentioned earlier, it's a huge issue for voters in this upcoming election. Mm-hmm. But many advocates who are on the border um, and many of your fellow Democrats say this bill goes way too far in terms of compromise. They say that allowing for the federal government, for example, to shut down asylum processing when immigration levels are high at the border is is inhumane. It contradicts this sort of, you know, American values that the country was founded Mm -hmm. on to allow people to come here. What do you think about that? 
Well, I think if you look at the bill, it does not shut down asylum uh, process. It does give the option to do it, uh, but it's not nothing that is guaranteed in stone. And and for people that are still applying uh, through normal means, such as through an appointment or overseas, there's still a lot of ways that people are going to be applying. And as a matter of fact, I think because we're fully funded, for some officers, you're going to be able to get people to actually have hearings faster, especially for people that do deserve uh, asylum. Uh, you're not going to be dealing with you know some of the you know, men that are coming over that that clearly do not deserve asylum that are clogging up the system. So uh, again, they're not also wrong. I mean, ideally, I would have loved to have added more uh, immigration reform substance to this, uh, especially you know maybe protecting our dreamers and giving them a pathway to citizenship, mm-hmm. but. That wasn't going to happen. Um, And at the same time, you do have border communities that are suffering and there is a problem and we have to be realistic while still keeping our core values as a country that welcomes asylum seekers. And I think this bill does that. So another big criticism here is that in those kinds of uh, measures that I mentioned, like it's bringing back Trump era policies like Title 42 that that were challenged in the courts often. Do you think that's the case here or do you think this is different? I think it's different just because Title 42 essentially just stopped any form of processing of asylum seekers and then had a uh, de facto remain in Mexico policy, uh, which eventually did not work. Uh, as we saw, there was huge surges of asylum seekers uh, right before COVID. So um, this is going to, I think, create a couple things. Number one, more transparency when it comes to asylum seekers. There's going to be quicker adjudication whether you have uh, a right to asylum uh, or not. And by doing that, you're going to have less amount of people coming to the border trying to get uh, you know, in and stay in the country for four to five years until they get uh, their hearing uh, in front of an immigration judge. So this is a more transparent way to do this. I think it's a, a better process. Um, ideally, you know, there, we want to make sure that it's a balance between security and, of course, again, keeping our asylum system intact. But this actually, I think, makes sure that the, the asylum system continues to survive into the future. So you mentioned before some of the things that you you know wish were in the bill, including protection for dreamers. Is this sort of a, a first step in your mind? Are you hoping that more will be done on this in the future? Yeah, I, I think more should have been done in the past. And I think one of the, you know, my biggest criticism of the Senate last year is that we passed uh, three immigration reform measures uh, that were uh, essentially filibustered at the the Senate level. I think there is, uh, I believe uh, strongly in my core that you're never going to have real border security unless you have immigration reform uh, together. And so, you know, this is uh, more tilted towards border security. But I think uh, given the opportunity and giving uh, the right amount of you know, votes that we need, we need to also have uh, immigration reform. Hmm. So uh, you mentioned this a little bit there, right? Like you're getting at this idea that this is not the first time that lawmakers have tried to strike a compromise on comprehensive immigration reform. It's, you know, often been Arizona leaders who have done that in, you know, our history, but it's mm-hmm. never really been successful, not in the last several decades here. Why do you think mm-hmm. that is? Like, why is immigration always sort of this political football? Because it is a political football that you know people like to use uh, as wedge issues, but I also think the part of the reason is because we've always uh, subjected immigration reform to the filibuster, uh, and there's always going to be forty people, forty senators that are going to reject immigration reform because they want to uh, continue to throw the political football. Let me ask you lastly, um, Congressman, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has said that this bill is dead on arrival there. Donald Trump is against it. Do you think that you'll get the chance to vote on this? Like, would this be too much of a political win for Democrats heading into a presidential election year? Look, I don't know, but I'm disappointed that they're thinking that way. Uh, 
you know, clearly these Republicans that go to the border all the time, you know, put on their flak jackets and their helmets and talk about the border and border security uh, don't really care about it as an actual solution. They're not listening to the Border Patrol Union, which, by the way, people that I usually will never align with politically when we're both saying that this is a good solution uh, and they're saying this is a solution that's needed. The Republicans are uh, you know, not listening when they decide to go and talk to these you know, small town mayors on the border, whether it's Arizona or Texas, uh, and they tell them this is what we need. And they, and they decide to use this political process. We won't listen to them when they actually ask for uh, support in this bill. It tells you where their values are. They want this as a political wedge issue. They do not want a solution. And uh, you know, because of that, we should make sure that they don't ever take power because we'll never see a solution. All right. We'll leave it there. Congressman Ruben Gallego joining us. Thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Republican Carrie Lake is running against Representative Gallego for Senator Sinema's seat. If Lake was in the Senate right now, she'd be among the senators opposed to this bipartisan border deal. KJZZ's political editor, Ben Giles, is covering this race and spoke with Lake earlier this morning to find out what she doesn't like about it and how the debate over immigration and the border will shape the campaign trail. Why do you oppose this bipartisan deal that was crafted in the Senate? Well, I thought they were putting together a border plan that would secure the border. And this plan doesn't do that. And this plan isn't needed to secure the border. It's a a bloated plan full of money that is uh, meant to aid in foreign wars. And I think the American people are tired of that, of that type, type of policy. $74 billion going to foreign countries to fund wars is not securing our border. And we could do a a border security plan for a lot less than that. And frankly, we had a secure border under President Trump. And and unfortunately, on day one, upon entering office, Joe Biden immediately ended the national emergency declaration at the border and blocked the border wall construction, which we do know works. The border wall does work and stopped the remain in Mexico policy, which was helping to keep all these people pouring across now seeking asylum in Mexico. And it was actually a process that we had under President Trump that worked better and kept this invasion from um, happening here in America. So I don't think it's necessary. I think it's a, a, a bill that's really designed to pour a bunch of money into Ukraine and other conflicts. And it is not designed to end the problem at our southern border, but just to pour more money into the symptoms. But this was a, a compromise. You know, that was the, the the point of tying border funding to uh, funding for Ukraine and Israel. That was something that congressional Republican leadership had had suggested. And this bill did include things like measures to automatically close the border if crossings hit 5,000 crossings a day. The deal also included tougher standards on asylum and expansions of detention capacity. Aren't those helpful things for our border communities? Well, I would ask you this. Do you really think it's a compromise that, you know, $74 billion is going to fund foreign war? Do we have to compromise with elected officials in order to get a secure border by doling out billions of dollars to foreign wars? I think we need to name names on who is demanding that we pour billions into foreign wars in order to secure our border here at home. I want to know who's demanding that as part of the compromise. I I really think the American people deserve the names of these elected officials who are saying, we will not secure the border unless you agree to pour billions into Ukraine and other foreign wars. That's what I want to know. 
There is this political sense now, though, that that something has to be done about immigration. What do you say to to people like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was urging Republicans in Congress to support this as, as recently as Monday, even the Border Patrol Union, which came out in support of this bipartisan deal? Well, I think um, Mitch McConnell has backed away from his support. It sounds like it's uh, he's less supportive of it today than he was uh, when it first came out. And I even think the Border Patrol Union had Brandon Judd. I'm sensing he's backing away a little bit from it as well now that they're realizing what a mess this legislation is. I have not spoken with Brandon Judd, but I have talked to many members who are in the Border Patrol or spouses of uh, Border Patrol agents, and they are appalled by this. You talked about immigration. We do have issues with our immigration system, but we cannot solve that until we secure the border. We must secure the border first. It's very easy to do. Joe Biden could do it right now, and it could be secured within a week. But he's got to go back to some of those policies that President Trump had implemented. And and listen, I get it. I know not everybody loves President Trump. I think he was an incredible president. I think his policies made all of our lives better, whether you like him or you don't. But the policy he had enacted on the border, and I was a broadcast journalist for 27 years. I covered Arizona. I covered the border. It had never been more secure than under President Trump. We need to go back to those policies for the sake of our country, for the sake of our national security, and for the sake of American uh, citizens. And and I think Joe Biden can do that. If he doesn't want to give the credit to President Trump, that's fine with me. He can retitle it the the Biden border security policy, whatever he wants to retitle it. And we'll be happy to give Joe Biden the credit for it. But Something's got to give, and we have to stop this invasion at the border. And this this piece of legislation does not do that. Immigration is certainly going to be a, a central issue on the upcoming campaign trail. Does the upcoming election play into your opposition to this? Do you think maybe this would be too much of a political win for Democrats heading into this presidential election season? Well, if you followed my campaign for governor, you know that I have been not only talking about the border, but I came up with the first most aggressive and bold plan to secure the border from the state level, not relying on the federal government because of what Joe Biden did on day one, hour one of his administration, where he pulled back that successful border plan that was in place. um, I worked really hard to come up with a plan that would allow us, that was constitutional, by the way, that would allow us as a state to secure our border. And we're seeing parts of my plan that that Governor Abbott is now employing in Texas, and it's working. It's working. We don't need the federal government to protect our citizens from an invasion. We have the right as a state to do that. All right. We'll leave it there. U.S. Senate candidate Carrie Lake, thank you for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. What role should religious institutions and clergy members play in politics? It's a question that's often debated, especially close to elections. And as our next guest explains, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives wants to allow faith leaders to be more involved. Adam Chattero is a law professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at ASU and has written about something called the Johnson Amendment. He spoke about it and a proposed change to it with my co-host Mark Brody, beginning with what exactly the Johnson Amendment is, 
what it does and what it precludes. Sure. Uh, The Johnson Amendment came into the tax code in the 60s uh, as a result of uh, then-Senator Johnson. Lyndon um, Johnson. Lyndon Johnson uh, getting – actually ticked off that there were a bunch of of nonprofit organizations essentially campaigning against him. And what it does is it precludes nonprofits from uh, getting involved in elections, from endorsing candidates, from lobbying. And you had written fairly recently about the now Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, no relation to, to Lyndon Johnson or the Johnson Amendment. And he has a particular interest in this in this part of law. It sounds like he, he's not too not too keen on it. No, he's he's actually quite opposed and has sponsored legislation every year he's been in Congress to uh, amend the Johnson Amendment. And and his particular focus is is not on nonprofits generally, although his amendment would do that, but rather on churches because churches are nonprofit under the tax code and so they're covered by this amendment as well. So under Speaker Johnson's plan, would churches and other religious institutions then be free to formally endorse or oppose candidates in elections? Yes. And what kind of impact might that have? I mean, how would that be different from a practical standpoint than what happens now in churches and synagogues and mosques and other houses of worship? Right. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about about churches and, and law and the Johnson Amendment is that much of law addresses moral issues and concerns and these are things that, that ministers, rabbis, et cetera, speak out on regularly. Right. And we want them to speak out on that. Uh, the Johnson Amendment doesn't say you can't. What it says is th- there's a line and that line is you can't go so far as to endorse or get involved. And what Speaker Johnson's proposed amendment to the amendment would do would be to open the door to allow churches, to allow ministers from the pulpit to say, you know, praise the Lord and I hereby uh, endorse, you know, candidate X, uh, which would, I think, turbocharge the the sort of connection between law and religion. Well, because it seems as though that line, maybe that connection has been there and and is currently there in terms of like if you go to a particular congregation, you might know where they stand on climate change or on reproductive rights or on any number of other sort of social issues. What you're saying is that by doing away with the Johnson Amendment, it would just take it a step further. But I wonder like if practically speaking, is it that big of a deal to allow clergy members to endorse candidates as opposed to maybe endorse positions on particular issues? That's a great question and and I think there are a couple of concerns. So let's talk about the policy underlying the Johnson Amendment. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, Senator Johnson – did it on some level in a fit of peak, but there's actually a real policy concern underneath, which is that we have taken the position as a society that we don't endorse political spending, right? So we don't subsidize it. When you give to the Democrats or you give to the Republicans, you don't get to deduct that. Mm. And so what that means is that we have to prevent nonprofit organizations from getting involved in politics. Otherwise, we blow a hole in that policy. So that's that's the first policy. But there's a second really important policy out there, which is that we're not just trying to protect politics, right? We're also trying to protect churches because religion is about eternal truth. Uh, it is about right and wrong. 
And politics is about compromise. It is about making deals. And and once you pick a team, right, suddenly you start to forgive the sins of your team and, and find the sins in the other team. So a great example of that would be uh, when Bill Clinton was being impeached, right? Moral character mattered and there were a number of religious groups that went on record saying morality matters and the moral character of our candidates matters. With Donald Trump, suddenly you had many of these same organizations saying, oh, the, the moral character of our leaders is irrelevant. And, and so the, the fear is that once you let ministers take that next step and start endorsing candidates, suddenly they're on a team and, and they're supposed to be on team, if you're Christian, team Jesus. But suddenly they become you know, team Republican or team Democrat and that, that – that I think is probably bad for religion generally. So you mentioned that while not the main focus of Speaker Johnson's efforts, that this proposed change would also deal with other nonprofits. I'm curious how that might affect not only politics, but also maybe charitable giving and, and the tax code and tax collections more broadly. Well, I think that what we would end up with is even more so than today, the politicization of tax-exempt organizations. So the Sierra Club is concerned with the environment. It's concerned with climate change. Those tend to trend more democratic than Republican. But there are plenty of Republicans who believe in climate change and who care about the environment. But if they come out and endorse the Democratic candidate for president, you may well end up scaring away Republicans who say, I care about the environment, but I don't want my money going to an organization that opposes my positions in other areas. Hmm. And so if we allow nonprofits to, to start getting involved in politics in that way, I think we will further splinter sort of the politics of the United States. So, so that's the first piece of the question you asked. The second piece is, well, how does it affect money flows? Well, people will start donating more and more to organizations that reflect not necessarily their care for the environment, but their care for their party. I'm curious again, though, about the practical impact of this, because a group like the Sierra Club, like and many others, I don't want to single them out, but a lot of these nonprofit groups, they put out scorecards, for example, rating legislators on pick your issue, the environment, on guns, on abortion, on any number of issues. And if you read them, you kind of get a sense of which candidates that particular group would support and which they wouldn't. You know, the candidates getting the A's, you would imagine that group would support. The candidates getting the F's, you would think they wouldn't. So is it really that big of a deal to say to Sierra Club or whichever group it is, yeah, just go ahead and, and just make it official? Like, we know you support this candidate. Just say so. I mean, that's the argument for those who support this amendment, they would say, look, churches, other organizations, they're already at the line. And, and in fact, if you read the text of, of the proposed law, it, it only allows de minimis expenditures. And so what, what Speaker Johnson and his supporters would say is we're not saying they're going to go out and, and conduct polling or door knocking, right? We're not paying people to do stuff. We just want to be able to mention it and just go a little further. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is that it's not just a little further, right? Once you've taken that step, you, you get deeper and deeper down the partisan trail and, and I think it will actually affect donations and it will affect 
the behavior of these organizations because they will be more about electing this person than about the cause itself. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Adam Chaudhary with the ASU Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. Adam, nice to see you. Thank you. It's great to see you too. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. A team of researchers at Arizona State University have made some big strides in the field of nanotechnology. They've created a nano device that can selectively target cancer cells to administer cancer-fighting drugs right where they need to go. That could mean a cancer patient might be able to get the treatment they need at a cellular level instead of blasting their entire body with radiation or chemotherapy. It has the potential to change the field, and I spoke more about it with molecular designer and ASU professor Hao Yan. Well, the idea of a nanotechnology for cancer therapy is to create um, a nanoscale object, right? And one nanometer is the one billionth of a meter. Wow. Uh, one thousandth of the width of a human hair, right? Imagine that you hmm. can use the nanostructure to carry the drug, and the nanostructure will help the drug to be more efficiently delivered to the tumor site and help to eliminate the tumor. That's the goal of nanomedicine, but there are many challenges we'll talk about. Yeah, okay. So let's talk a little bit about how this approach that you're taking here is different from other cancer treatments that have used nanotechnology. It sounds like you solved a pretty foundational problem here. Well, you heard about uh, all these robots and other people trying to create the um, man-sized robot to do the job, right? So what mm-hmm. we do is exactly to shrink that robot into nanometer scale and hoping that we can create an intelligent nano robot that can help us to deliver the drug only to the site we want it to be and to kill the cancer here. Yeah. So this like is inside of a patient's DNA strands, essentially. This is how small we're talking. So the idea here is that we're not using DNA as a genetic material. Instead, we use DNA as a material, as a generic material to create the nanobot. Right. So the nanobot is folded by um, strands of DNA into a design shape. Let's say if we want to create a mind kind of a shape or we want to create a bottle, we can use DNA to do the job. Hmm. Talk about your own personal view of this. Like as you've been working in this field, like was there a moment at which you realized you had sort of cracked this code, for lack of a better phrase, and, and that this would function differently and work in a different, more direct way? Of course, there's always a eureka moment, yeah. right? And- you just got inspired by how those amazing biological machines work in the body, right? You got inspired by the biological machine and tried to create a man-made machine that can mimic the complex functions of uh, those molecules, right? Mm-hmm. And here we wanted to use it for the nanomedicine applications, right? Yeah. But there are a lot of uh, struggles um, during this uh, course. Right, so you design something and that doesn't go to the right side. <laughs> you design something that doesn't release the drug, right? So we have to troubleshoot the design to make it better. Yeah, so it's a lot of guess and check, and then it 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 right. happened. Right. Something clicked at a certain point. Wow. 
So tell us a little bit lastly here about the broader implications of this. Like when we think of cancer treatment, I think most people will probably think of chemotherapy or radiation, um, something like that surgery often to remove whatever part of the body, you know, is is cancerous. This goes at it from a very different way. Will it mean that a cancer patient maybe doesn't have to submit themselves to the broader kind of cancer-killing treatments that, that affect the rest of their bodies, things like chemo or radiation. Yeah, uh, of course, I, I personally believe there are a lot of uh, broader applications of using the nanobot. Um, and chemo is uh, very toxic to the body, right? What we do here is try to avoid the toxicity by only delivering the drug to the uh, tumor site, hmm. right? And in an intelligent way. Yeah. Do you think that this is a game changer? This is the future of cancer treatment? Well, it'll take a few years to really put this into reality, right, to push this to the clinic. But I, I strongly believe there is a huge potential using applying this technology to treat cancer. Wow. Okay. We'll leave it there. That is how Yan, Center Director and Professor at the Biodesign Center for Molecular Design and Biomimetics at ASU, joining us to talk more about this innovation. Thank you so much for joining us, How I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. All right, that'll do it for this Wednesday edition of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. Have a good one.